Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 39, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's podcast is John D. Cook, research statistician at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and associate faculty at the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. And we discuss a very broad career in a lot of depth. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest today is John D. Cook, research statistician at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and associate faculty at the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. I want to uh, welcome you on the show as well as to publicly thank you for publicizing us for previous episodes. Oh, you're welcome. Enjoy your show. I, it's it's good to know that uh, anyone out there is listening, really. I want to get down and ask you a question. Now, you, unlike a lot of the people I have had on the show, are not a pure mathematician. And and one thing, on your on your website, you have a description of what you do, and you call it very applied mathematics. And I was wondering if you could give a bit of a taste to uh, the people listening, what you mean by very applied mathematics. I mean, that's a little tongue in cheek, but I use the term very applied to distinguish it from pseudo applied math. I mean, I enjoy pure math. I took a lot of theoretical classes in grad school and topology and functional analysis, things like that. So I enjoy pure math. But what I don't have much patience for is pseudo-applied math, the math that pretends to be applied but doesn't really address a problem. What's an example of some sort of mathematics that claims to be applied math, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with the real world? Well, I guess one in which you uh, completely make up your own assumptions without regard to whether they describe reality. One example of pseudo-applied math would be my dissertation. I did something involving... PDE models for fractured reservoirs. From the title, it sounds very applied, but I wasn't able to connect it with any physical data. At best, it was a model somewhat abstractly motivated by a physical problem, but it was probably overstating to to call it applied. That does make quite a bit of sense. Now, I was wondering, because going through, I was looking at the list of published papers that you have, and it did seem that that a lot of them did actually deal with clinical trials. And now I don't I don't know much about what clinical trials actually involve. I mean, I, I know what they are, but I, I don't know what they actually involve. So I was wondering, what sort of things do you do from the mathematical and statistical point of view for work with clinical trials? Well, a lot of the work I do is in Bayesian statistics and. These designs are adaptive, so you want to learn how to treat the third patient based on what you've learned from the first two patients, etc. Doing this involves some computational difficulties. So some of the work involved is numerical analysis to compute these things accurately and efficiently, computing the probabilities that you use to make treatment assignments. You, you, do, this, you do this work now, and you said that you did uh, study 
a decent amount of pure mathematics as well. So what, what kind of uh, got you down the path to studying mathematics at all? Well, I enjoyed math. I, well, that's, I don't know if I thought about that. <laughs> uh, well, I was interested in math and science, and I, I thought I might go into physics, but there was a lot of math I wanted to learn first, and then I just kept going deeper into math. And, and so then you kept on going deeper into mathematics, uh, and then, then you started doing this, this a very applied mathematics things. Now, most, I mean, most of the people that I talk to end up going down a, a very strict kind of academic route. You, on the other hand, looking at your resume, you have, you have been a teacher, but you've also been a consultant and a statistician and a software developer and a manager. So how did you sort of end up being this, this person who wears multiple hats instead of just going into that, that one career path that it seems to be open for everyone who goes into graduate school in mathematics, namely academia? Well, I sort of gradually shifted from the most pure end of the spectrum to the most applied, I guess. I mean, I took, like I said, topology courses and so forth in grad school, but then ended up studying partial differential equations, which is pure math or applied math, depending on your perspective. Then uh, after a postdoc, uh, I left academia. I decided I'd rather leave academia than take a, an academic job that I didn't like. So I became a programmer for a while. And then I uh, worked for a consulting company, uh, got an assignment in the medical center in Houston. And from there, I moved to MD Anderson at first to manage software development for biostatistics. And then from that, I segued into being more involved in the research. Do you feel that there was is something from your mathematical background that, say, really helped you in, in being able to be a better manager? I, I just asked the question because I don't know any other trained mathematicians who are actually managers. <laughs> well, it helped uh, at least at MD Anderson, because the projects I was managing were very mathematical. You had to understand the problem in order to understand what the difficulties are. As we've, we've mentioned all the, all the things that you've done, it seems you do have a rather large and broad knowledge base. And I was, I was really wondering uh, if, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the percentage of that that you say learned from school, which in, in a blog post that you actually uh, wrote about, you called that uh, just-in-case learning, versus the amount that you've actually learned from life experience and things you had to, which in, in the same post you uh, referred to as just-in-time. Right. Well, I knew nothing about Bayesian statistics in grad school. I knew one person who described himself as a closet Bayesian, and that was as close as I came. But I did study numerical analysis, and that I was able to apply. But the statistics itself I've learned uh, as I started working at MD Anderson. What do you think necessarily is, is the strength of, of learning things in that way? Does it, does it allow you to uh, learn it faster or is it, is it just something that you, and you just continually enjoy to keep on learning? Well, I think both are important. And there's a limit to what you can learn just in time. It's good to have a solid theoretical foundation. But once you have that, it is easier to maybe learn things just in time. I mean, when you're learning something because you have a need for it, there's no question whether it's useful. You know it's useful before you learn it. And you're motivated, and you don't have to imagine an application if, you, if the application comes first. Hey, it's Sam. 
and I'm popping into this interview to remind you once again about Relatively Prime, a Kickstarter project that is being brought to you by AcmeScience.com. Now this is going to be an eight episode series of nice and deep explorations of topics within mathematics. Now, if you want to hear something like this, I need you to go to Kickstarter and search for Relatively Prime and pledge your support behind it. If you don't have any money to give, please Twitter about Relatively Prime, blog about it, go on Reddit, go on Slashchat, submit it to Boing Boing, do everything that you possibly can to let as many people know about Relatively Prime as you can. The URL? If you want to go there right now, it's http colon slash slash bit.ly slash r-e-l-p-r-i-m-e. Now, let's get back to that interview. So another thing that you do is, is you write blog posts for uh, The Endeavor. And one thing I've noticed is that you are very, very regular with your posts. It's, it's about once a day, sometimes more than once a day. I, I, I scrolled back through the last few weeks at the very least. And I didn't notice a day being missed. I, I was wondering what, what sort of motivates you to keep such a regular schedule with, with the updating of your blog? Because that's something that I'm completely incapable of doing. <laughs> well, it's something that I enjoy doing. Often the blog posts are prompted by something in my work or something that I've been reading. I enjoy posting regularly and getting regular feedback from other people. You know, if I make a mistake, then someone will let me know, usually within a few minutes. And, uh, I, also, I get a lot of, lot of good ideas from people uh, contributing comments. With these, I mean, you write on a, on a huge kind of variety of, of topics, Instead of, you know, say, just focusing on your statistics or your software development things, or, or even just focusing on, say, mathematics, what really brought you to developing such, such a large and diverse set of things that you are, are clearly very interested in? That's just sort of my personality. I find it easier to go broad than to go deep. So I have broad interests, and I enjoy uh, talking about them. I enjoy working in the intersection where, where these things overlap. This, this kind of uh, breadth versus is depth thing is something I, I've talked to other people about before as well. Because at, at least graduate school these days tends to really focus on bringing people very, very deep. Uh, but you yourself seem to be a, a very successful person while focusing on breadth instead. Do you think that we, we might be focusing, say, too much on depth when we uh, start to s educate people today? I think so. I think the, gra the graduate school system is designed to get people to writing papers as soon as possible, which is good, but it, it leaves some things out. There's an awful lot of math that is no longer research material that people don't learn because it's not on a beeline to writing a dissertation. Uh, there's an awful lot of math that was developed, say, in the 19th century that most people are completely ignorant of because it's too advanced for undergraduate material and it's not an area of active research. What, what is something you say would have completely missed out on if you, if you would have went for depth instead of going for breadth? Something that you really are happy that you either know about or do now that you just wouldn't have had the chance for? Well, for example, you know, I studied differential equations and so I proved all kinds of abstract theorems about accretive operators on Bonnock spaces and so forth. And so I learned the modern theory, but there's a tremendous amount of classical theory that I didn't learn in grad school. I mean, most of 
19th century math was centered around differential equations of one sort or another, the theory of linear differential equations, uh, special functions, and so forth. And I knew almost nothing about that in grad school. What has that allowed you to do since you left now that you do know about it? Well, I can think of at least one instance where I was able to come up with a faster algorithm for computing some probabilities because I could reduce the problem to identities involving hypergeometric functions, special functions that come out of differential equations. Say that you're a mathematician now, or you're, you're someone going to school for mathematics now who does not want to go down that super deep academic path where you're one of three people in the world who knows the absolute most about some obscure area of abstract algebra. And what, what would you say suggest to that person if they want to go into a world very much like the one that you live in? Well, I guess the first question is whether you want to pursue an academic career or a career in industry. I saw something recently that the majority of PhDs are not going into academia, and the private sector has a very different set of values. private sector values breadth more than depth. The private sector is more about solving problems where the, the problems come first, not the techniques. As far as advice, I would say you, know, you have to play both games. You have to be narrow to get out of uh, grad school in a finite amount of time. But you can continue learning on your own, reading for breadth. One bit of advice that my advisor gave me in grad school was to uh, do your leisure reading at the highest possible income level. So I think what he had in mind is uh, get a good job first and then worry about broadening yourself. I would say that's particularly applicable if you're going down the academic route. One, one other thing you, you do is you have... You you are an active Twitter user under your Twitter handle, John D. Cook, but you also run 11 tip accounts, including algebra fact, topology fact, analysis fact. Now, I, I was wondering what really helped spawn the, these tip accounts, which give out one post per day about either a fact or a tip in various uh, mathematics and, say, computer science-related uh, areas. Well, I started slowly. I wanted to learn how to use... Windows without a mouse, and so I started my first account, Sans Mouse, that's uh, one keyboard shortcut a day, and uh, just over time added one count after another till I uh, built up to 11, as you say. Uh, what sort of reaction have you, have you had to this? Like, what, what really brings in more followers, a, a fact about algebra and number theory, or perhaps regular expression tips? Well, the most popular one is the CompSci fact, but probability fact is maybe the next one. So it's, it's a mixture. I do have to say that actually surprised me a bit. I figured that the, that the tips about Python or LaTeX would probably actually come out ahead of knowing small facts about mathematics and computer science. But I'm, I'm admittedly happy that that's not true. Well, some things are easier to reduce to 140 characters than others. I was reluctant to start stat fact because a lot of things in statistics just can't be expressed correctly in a short space. Topology, on the other hand, is is very easy. There are a lot of theorems that are the form every x is a y, and just easy to state succinctly. Along along with all these these fact and tip Twitter accounts, you you've also written a lot of kind of general consumption articles and things like clinical trials, math, stats, modeling that are are very kind of well written, basic uh, introduction things to at least things that you seem to be interested in and and that are actually quite interesting like say linear interpolation linear interpolation sorry about that and and what what kind of made you decide to to write these these articles uh, kind of for a general consumption audience 
Well, I enjoy teaching, and I guess this is a sort of way of teaching. I enjoy explaining things, and this is a way to do that. So I, I guess I, I have one last question for you. On, on your Six Degrees of, of Paul Erdős post on the Endeavor, you put out a question, I wonder who might be the Paul Erdős of applied math. And I was wondering, did you ever get an answer for that? Uh, not that I know of. Uh, that's, that's too bad, because it would be, uh, be an interesting Six Degrees of Separation project to work on. Well, it would be a slippery problem, because how do you classify whether someone is applied or not? It's really a question of motivation more than subject classification. Uh, for example, uh, Robert Grist uh, is an algebraic topologist, but he's very much an applied mathematician, whereas the other people working in areas that seem very applied that would probably call themselves pure mathematicians. And then you have people in the middle, like maybe Ron Graham might be a good candidate, but you know, is he pure or applied? I guess it depends. Yeah, I, it's, I don't know what, what Ron Graham is. I've, I've seen him give talks that would very easily be classified as both. Right. Well, John Cook, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Strongly Connected Components. Well, I enjoyed talking with you. Now that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you have any feedback or perhaps want to suggest a guest, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. Also, make sure to head on over to acmescience.com where you can find out more information about our guest on today's program, as well as find a link to the Acme Science Kickstarter project, Relatively Prime, as well as links to all of the other shows that are available through acmescience.com, all of which you should probably give a listen. The music on today's podcast was... Hard and Firm Song Pie in the beginning, and then Interstitial and Outro Music was by SP12, we can find over at opsound.org. Strongly Connected Components is, as always, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License, which means, of course, that you can take all of the audio on here and remix it as you wish, as long as you state that you originally got the audio from us. And, of course, keep a Creative Commons license. Al, I want to thank you all for listening to Strongly Connected Components, and I hope that you come back for our next episode.